Well, hello and welcome. It's great to be with you as we continue our series on Rethinking Church, exploring the book of Ezra. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. This is the first of Martin Luther's 95 theses that he purportedly nailed to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral in the year 1517. A call for our entire life to be one of repentance. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not sure how I feel about that. A colleague recently shared with me a story from his school days. A prank of some kind had been carried out by a fellow student and the teacher, in an attempt to ascertain the identity of the culprit, threatened to keep the whole class in at lunch. My colleague, innocent though he was of this particular crime, chose to confess in order to save the class from such an unjust punishment. He went on to recount to me his indignation when the teacher promptly sent him to the principal to be punished. We tend to have an uneasy relationship with confession and repentance in our daily lives. Sometimes we find ourselves apologising for, or like my colleague, confessing to things that really aren't ours to confess, simply to try and avoid a conflict. Other times our pride gets in the way and, in the words of Elton John, sorry seems to be the hardest word. And if we aren't wrestling with when to repent, we seem to be confused about what repentance should mean. The cry, but I said I was sorry. So often the lament of someone who's not grasped the damage done by whatever their words or actions might have been and perhaps holds a far too simplistic view of what repentance is. Sometimes we put far too much faith in those simple words, I'm sorry, as if that first step of repentance fixes everything. One of our boys, when they were younger, put great faith in the power of sticky tape. They believed wholeheartedly that sticky tape could fix everything. I remember one night at dinner, we were eating pasta, and while playing with his food, a piece of his pasta broke in half. And I remember him holding up the broken pieces of pasta with tears in his eyes and pleading for me to fix it with sticky tape. They don't prepare you for those conversations as a parent. Now, there is great power in a sincere apology, don't get me wrong, but it's no cure-all. Sometimes as a church, I think we can fall into the same simplistic approach to confession and repentance. The prayer of confession that we pray many Sundays can become an act of religiosity rather than an act of the heart. We pray our prayers of confession because we think that that's what God wants and it's what good Christians do. Tim Keller puts it this way, in religion, the purpose of repentance is basically to keep God happy so he'll continue to bless you and answer your prayers. Religious repentance, he suggests, is selfish, self-righteous and bitter. This seems a far cry from the entire life of repentance that Luther describes. So what does it mean to be a church of repentance? Why is it something we should aspire to and how do we prevent it from becoming simply an act of religious piety? Now, if this seems like a lot of ground to to cover, then, uh, then you'd be right. But don't panic. 
Tracy has kindly allowed me two Sundays to delve into the last two chapters of Ezra and the topic of repentance. So today is part one of being a church of repentance and faith. Now, you might like to have a Bible in front of you as we dive now into the passage from the book of Ezra uh, that we've already heard read, and we're going to unpack it in, in bits. As we come to these final two chapters of the book of Ezra, we find some salient lessons about the people of God as a repentant people. To quickly recap the story, Ezra is made aware that the people of God have broken God's commands by not keeping themselves separate from the neighbouring nations who are described as having detestable practices. And what's more, some of God's people have taken wives for themselves from amongst these foreigners. Now, on hearing this, Ezra is distraught and a crowd gathers as he laments and prays, confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God. The people are equally distressed and join him in grieving until eventually the suggestion is made that they must send away the foreign women and their children in order to appease God's wrath. After much debate, the plan is agreed to, and the book of Ezra finishes with a list of those who were found guilty of marrying foreign women. Now, I won't tell you exactly what I first thought when I read this passage, knowing I was to preach on it. Suffice to say, it did not seem like a particularly endearing message. The the image I had in my head was, as I read, was a, a vast number of women and children simply cast out unceremoniously into the desert wilderness because they belonged to the wrong group of people. Maybe you had a similar reaction. It wasn't until I looked more closely at the passage and read some helpful commentaries that I realised my picture was somewhat inaccurate. So let me point out a few things first that I found helpful Uh, in simply working out how to understand this passage and what to do with it. Firstly, for those of you who might be concerned about the apparent condemnation of interracial marriage, uh, I think the issue that's at stake here, it's pretty clear, was a religious one, not a racial one. The problem was the detestable practices of the neighbouring people and the implication is that those Israelites who had intermarried were also adopting the pagan religious practices of those people. We're reminded of the warning in Deuteronomy, they will turn your sons away from me to worship other gods. Now, in fact, I learned only recently that the whole idea of race, at least in a genetic sense, is a relatively modern invention, dating back only as far as the late 16th century. This is not a race issue, this was a religious issue. Secondly, we need to distinguish whether the text we're reading is descriptive or proscriptive. In other words, is it describing what should happen or is it just describing what did happen? I think what we read here is a description of the painful consequences of the people's disobedience and their imperfect response. It's interesting to me that nowhere in these chapters do we actually hear God speak. Instead, through the voice of Ezra, what we see and hear described is God's people wrestling with how to obey the commands of God and and how to deal with the inevitable failures to do so. 
Thirdly, and this is a minor point, but it was still helpful for me, the whole putting off of the wives was not a simple casting out of vast numbers into the wilderness. The whole process took quite some time because it followed the legal processes of divorce, presumably with all the protections afforded by Jewish law at the time. Now, this still may not justify the action in our minds, but it does paint a very different picture to the one I started with, uh, the one of vast hordes of women and children simply cast into the wilderness. Uh, and, and we actually we know from the passage how much care was taken with the process because the names of those who did divorce their foreign wives were listed individually, about 115 of them. So perhaps my picture was a little dramatic, but it still seems like a pretty messy situation. Not Israel's finest hour. So, so what did they get right? Let, let's have a look at the process of repentance as they experienced it and unpack it as we go. It begins when Ezra is made aware of the sin and his first reaction is to be horrified. He says, when I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled my hair from my head and beard and sat down appalled. I would suggest that this is an appropriate first response to sin. You know that moment in a movie when the hero is, is about to betray their true love and you find yourself yelling in your head or perhaps for some of you out loud, don't do it because... We understand the implications of betraying a loved one. It resonates with us emotionally. So why should it be any different when we betray God's trust? Repentance is motivated in part by the recognition of that betrayal. We've wounded the very one that we love and our hearts are breaking because of it. Now, this is very different to that religious motivation of simply avoiding God's displeasure. Sin should grieve us, not because of the consequences, although we'll talk about that later, but because of our love for God and his for us. So Ezra's response of grief, the sin of his people, is the sort of response that perhaps we should have. Initially, grief at our mistakes, our disobedience, our sin. Ezra's next act is instructive. He prays. And what he prays is significant. He is not the one who has done the wrong thing in this case. His prayer could justifiably be one of accusation and perhaps condemnation, and yet he begins his prayer like this. I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads. Our sins. There's a dynamic going on here that I think we who have grown up in the the Western world, a world that prizes the individual above all, have trouble grasping. There's, there's plenty of social commentary around the problems arising from our rampant individualism, so I won't say too much here, but we see it in the, the decline of community and volunteer organisations, 
We see it in the overemphasis on rights at the expense of responsibilities. And we've seen it perhaps writ large in the recent events of American politics. In our world, the individual reigns supreme. Now, in an individualistic world like ours, Ezra would be declaring his innocence and decrying the sins of the people. And instead, he confesses their sins as his own. Again, he says, here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it not one of us can stand in your presence. This may seem like an unusual response in our culture, but it's actually more in line with how God calls us to respond as a church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But God has put the body together, giving greater honour to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is part of it. So Ezra prays and repents on behalf of his people. And what happens next? A large crowd of Israelites, men, women and children, gather around him and they too wept bitterly. The people of God gathered together in mourning, confession and repentance. No accusations, no finger pointing, simply a shared grief for the brokenness of God's people. In contrast to the selfishness and self-righteousness of religious repentance, what we see here is the humility and burning love for God that marks a repentance of the heart. Now, if we're talking about confessions, I have to confess that I don't think I've been moved to tears when saying the confession in church. Sure, there have been times when it lands a little closer to home, um, but I have to admit most of my rawer confessions to God tend to happen in a more private setting. Now, this is partly my personality, but... I found myself wondering as I prepared this sermon what it might look like, what it might be like if our prayer of confession as a church looked more like this. God's people gathered together in shared grief for the brokenness of humanity. It really gave me something to think about. Back to Ezra and things start to get really interesting now. In the midst of their grief, Shechaniah speaks up. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. So now, he says, let us make a covenant with our God to send away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. I think that Shechaniah got some things right here. Firstly, he names the sin, not with accusation, but with simply recognition. And in fact, he owns the sin as his own. We have broken faith. Sometimes as a church, we may need to do this, to identify a particular sin. This is not a name and shame exercise. 
and neither is it as an act of public discipline. This is an act of corporate confession. This is the way the church can respond to the abuses of power within its midst that have come to light in recent years with shared confession and repentance. This this is the way the church can respond to the shameful history of our nation's treatment of Indigenous Australians with shared confession and repentance. We are God's people and if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. And so as God's people, we can join together in repentance. It's a powerful picture of God's people gathering together to repent. At this point, I'm going to pause in our journey with Ezra and we'll pick it up again next week. What we've seen so far is a partial picture of what it means to be a people of repentance and faith. We focused perhaps on that initial confession. As a people of repentance and faith, we repent because we're grieved by sin, by the fallen brokenness of humanity. We repent not just privately, but collectively because we are the body of Christ. And our repentance begins with prayer and confession. But as we'll discover next week, it also leads to action. But for now, it seems fitting to conclude with a prayer of confession. So let's pray. May with most merciful God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we confess that we have sinned in thought, word and deed. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbours as ourselves. In your mercy, forgive what we have been. Help us to amend what we are and direct what we shall be, that we may do justly, love mercy and walk humbly with you, our God. Amen.